Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Martha Tettenborn is a registered dietitian and certified primal health coach with over 30 years of experience working in many areas of nutrition. Her private health coach practice, The Cancer Doula, promotes a low-carbohydrate, whole foods-based approach to disease prevention and cancer symptom management. When diagnosed with stage 1 ovarian cancer, Martha began exploring the research of the disease and discovered the science of cancer metabolism. This led her to develop and use a protocol of a ketogenic diet with targeted therapeutic fasting to significantly impact her response to chemotherapy. Her experience, strategies, and resources, plus the science behind them, are outlined in her book, Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. Martha also instructs courses teaching the ketogenic approach to cancer treatment for the Nutrition Network and Udemy. She lives in the beautiful Bruce uh, Bruce Peninsula in central Ontario, Canada, with her husband, Mike, a noisy cocktail named Ziggy, and a flock of backyard chickens. Learn more at MarthaTettenborn.com. Martha, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Well, thank you very much, Casey. It's wonderful to talk to you. I don't understand why I got through most of the introduction and really stumbled on Bruce Peninsula. I don't know why that's so hard to pronounce. Peninsula. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds beautiful. It's that big stuck piece of land that sticks up between Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. Oh, wow. That sounds uh, very beautiful and very cold. Yes, it's very beautiful um, on the Niagara Escarpment and stuck between two very large bodies of water. And it, in the winter, can be very cold. We get what's called lake effect snow, yeah, which means that a lot of snow forms over Lake Huron and dumps under on Bruce Peninsula. Yeah. So. We're just outside of Salt Lake City, so we're no strangers to lake effect snow. We get it all the time here as well. But I think it's a lot more cold and a lot more severe where you are. Um, my wife spent a little bit of time in Minnesota and, and went to school at UND. And she describes the wind coming off those lakes as just being absolutely frigid cold. Yeah, it can be. It can be. But, you know, it's still a beautiful place. And and the lake actually um, makes it less dramatic in terms of the temperatures than it is inland. Gotcha. So you can actually have much wider temperature swings and much colder because of the lake is very... temperate sort of effect. Gotcha. Wow. Well, it does sound very beautiful. It must be a lovely place to call home. That's great. It's cottage country. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love it. We'll be visiting for sure in the summer. Um, (laughs) Well, we have had the um, amazing opportunity to tackle this subject before on our show. We have hosted Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who's amazing. We have hosted Sam Apple, who wrote the book Ravenous, all about um, Dr. Otto Warburg, which is incredible. You know, Thomas Christofferson, so many different people who recognize cancer as a metabolic disease. And one of my favorite questions to ask them is to say like, okay, you've studied the science. You know this stuff forward and backward. You've identified cancer as a metabolic disease according to your theories. But let's let's just pretend for a second that you get the diagnosis of cancer and now there's a white coat in front of you and now what do you actually do? And it's fun to kind of go through that thought experiment of somebody who's like, you know, this is what I believe, but how would you act differently if it were you? And that's a tough question to ask and answer. And you... <laughs> you know, had to actually go through that process and actually had to gamble with your life on what you believe. What was that like? Yeah, I totally did. Um, I had already been well into the low carb um, realm for a number of years. Um, So I was a bit of a renegade and outside of the traditional um, knowledge base of registered dietitians already. 
Um, I had a private practice doing my own, um, you know, healthy, awesome aging sort of stuff, um, chronic disease prevention and stuff. So when I got this diagnosis, um, I wasn't about to just sit down and assume that um, the stuff that we knew in terms of nutrition was right, because the rest of it, what we knew about nutrition isn't right. Um, and as a dietitian, really, we were never trained to deal with cancer from a nutritional perspective. All we were really ever trained to do was to, to help people not lose weight um, because cancer treatment, the cancer process, but also cancer treatment is so harsh that you know weight loss and cancer cachexia in particular are like the absolute worst thing that could happen considered, right? And um, particularly cancer cachexia, which everybody just seemed to think was a problem of not enough calories. And it's not, it's, it's a different scientific or, you know, metabolic process, but, um, but anyways, our training was just basically in helping cancer patients to um, not lose weight despite what was being done to them. And so we were taught what was called like a high energy, high protein diet, which was just basically um, increasing nutrient density in whatever way you could. There was no, um, you know, things you should avoid. There was basically, um, you know, how many calories can you get into a small quantity of food because early satiety is a problem or nausea is a problem. So, you know, we were using honey and sugar and um, extra fats and so on. The, the, the example you use is um, you have one piece of toast, it's about 80 calories. But if you put butter and peanut butter and honey on the toast, you're up to about 250 calories. And it's still only one piece of toast. So if you can get someone to, you know, choke that down, then they get those calories. That's the theory. Well, that wasn't good enough for me. So I went digging into Dr. Google. And uh, sure enough, there's like, there's this whole field of cancer metabolism that I had never heard of. And I mean, I've been in the business for 30 years, like 30 plus. Um, and I was just gobsmacked that this stuff existed. When I was trained, it didn't exist. I mean, it's been around for 100 years, as you know, from talking to Sam Apple, but um, it had just gotten completely lost. And so when I started um, looking in 2018, it was not as common um, a piece of knowledge as it is now. Even just that, you know, four years ago was hugely different. And I found the work of Thomas Seyfried and Walter Longo and Miriam Kalamian, um, Adrian Shank. There's a bunch of them that were doing research on using metabolic interventions to address cancer and cancer treatments. And uh, I just went down this rabbit hole. So I developed, you know, a plan to because I was being highly encouraged to um, to take chemotherapy for um, you know prevention of recurrence basically, and uh, and I was terrified of the chemo. So I went looking for you know what I could do for myself, and I developed this plan. And at first, I didn't tell the doctor what I was doing. I just didn't tell him. Um, once I had the first chemo treatment under my belt, and it had been rather amazing successful to do the fasting, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I did try and tell him and uh, he really wasn't that interested because in a clinic visit, he only visits with you for a couple of minutes. Make sure you're still okay enough to have the next chemo treatment. 
So basically, he wasn't interested in having an in-depth discussion, despite the fact I took him a whole sheaf of abstracts and things that I had printed off for him. And his theory was just kind of, you know, different things work for different people. You go ahead if it's working for you. Um, So it wasn't until the end of my treatments when I had my last sort of sit down, you know, 40 minute conference with him that I was able to really talk about what I did. Um, Until then, I was just on my own and I just kept it quiet that I wasn't uh, I wasn't actually eating anything for two days before chemo. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. I just think it's, it's such a different thing to ask somebody what they would hypothetically do. And I know what I would answer, what I would hypothetically do, but if I've got a white coat sitting in front of me saying they want to do it, a needle biopsy and they want to do surgery the next day, and then they want to start, you know, radiating and chemotherapy that, that that's tough. That's a really tough place to be. And so I really respect you having actually gone through that. It's funny. You mentioned past cancer treatments. You and I were both talking offline about how both of our mothers passed away from breast cancer. And I remember when my mom was very sick, um, her religion, the predominant religion around here in Utah is the, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. They don't drink coffee, but Starbucks had just opened up in the neighborhood and they were selling this, um, oh, it was this apple caramel something or other that must have had a bazillion calories of straight up sugar. I mean, it was just syrup and sugar. 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 Yeah. I would take those to the hospital for with the understanding Mm -hmm. that, yeah, this might, you know, help you gain weight, but it's also like a comforting food. And I just think like, what, what a disaster, like what a mistake that was to do that. But that's the best we knew how to do at the time. Oh, absolutely. It's all anybody knew how to do was to, like you say, that's an easy liquid way to get in a bunch of calories. And that's what we thought was the right way to approach things. Um, because nobody under really understood the, the difference in um, how cancer metabolizes its energy. Once I realized that there was a different metabolism um, and that it really fit well with what I had already learned in terms of low carb and keto diets and, you know, chronic disease prevention and stuff, then it was like, well, you know, it's, it's a no brainer that, that what I already know how to do, I can do to a greater extent to make the cancer less, uh, less happy, let's yeah. say yeah. in, in my case, I didn't have a tumor, um, present in my body once I knew I had cancer, like I, I had a huge ovarian cyst and it was just a big fluid filled cyst. And the, the blood marker for ovarian cancer wasn't showing very high at all. And, and like just barely above normal range. And it was, um, it, they, they say it's not a terribly accurate test anyways. So nobody thought it was cancer. So I had the cyst ruptured in my abdomen and, and then deflated and sucked out, which, you know, was my choice. And I live in a small city. So the local gynecologist could do that as an outpatient, you know, a day surgery sort of operation. So that was my choice. And um, it was six days later when they called back and said, you know, come back and see the surgeon. She wants to see you tomorrow. Bring your husband. Like, oh, crap. Yeah, I knew what that meant. Um, So by the time I was talking to oncologists, there was no tumor there was no cancer left in my body, but we didn't know about what had happened with this rupture. And that's why I ended up having chemotherapy. Gotcha. Well, I think it's really important to point out um, the the way that you discovered that you even had anything going on. For all of my clients who are listening to this right now, this is the reason why I make you do planks. <laughs> Absolutely awful. <laughs> And now this is one more reason that I'm going to make you do even more planks. And and can you describe what that was like? You were actually doing a plank when you discovered that there was an issue. I was, I was. So um, 
I've I've been sort of a lifelong non-exerciser who discovered at about the age 40 that uh, I really love to run. Long, slow, I did I, I walked a couple of full marathons and I did a lot of half marathons, but you know, resistance training, blag. Um, yeah, I, I like stuff I can, I, I like running. I just, that's the only thing that really appeals to me. Um, but I had, uh, I'd spent a weekend with my best friends from high school and one of them was training to, to do something extremely physically strenuous and she had really inspired me. So I went home and I was determined that I was going to start you know, doing some body weight exercises and push-ups and some planks and stuff. And after about a month and a half or two months, um, she sent me a text message one day and said, so what are you up to on your plank? And I kind of went, Ooh, I, um, I haven't done one of those in a while. Yeah. I'd kind of fallen off the wagon again. So I immediately got off the couch and I laid down on my living room floor to do a plank. And the moment I laid on my belly, there was something there. It was just this, it felt like I was laying on an egg and I just kind of went, oh crap, this isn't good. Um, and, uh, and I sat up, grabbed my phone, called my doctor. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm not one that's going to ignore the fact that it's there, but I have a life that just doesn't have me laying on my belly. I mean, I don't have babies. I don't have puppies. I don't, you know, I have no reason to lay down on my belly. Um, so it just hadn't happened before that. So I, I live in Canada where we have, you know, socialized medicine, which sometimes means you don't actually get into everything the, the very next day, but you do get looked after. And so um, about five days later, I went in and by, of course, by then I had been into Dr. Google again, and I had sort of determined that I probably had a fibroid on my uterus. And uh, I went in and the doctor started poking around in my belly and making a lot of, you know, indeterminate, not so great noises, uh, humming and hawing, and then sent me off for an ultrasound. And um, so that's when I discovered that the cyst, one of my ovaries had turned into a great big cyst. And uh, it was already 15 centimeters across. So that's almost six inches wow. um, at that point. So it was, it was big. And it ended up, because it was the middle of summer, right? I mean, everybody was on holidays. And um, so it was another two months before I actually had the surgery to have it removed. And um, it kept growing during that time. So by the time I was um, actually had it out, it was it was like being about five months pregnant. It was, you know, had grown up above my, the level of my navel. And every time I sat down, I had to pull my loose waisted pants up over the bump. Wow. Um, you've never been pregnant. So you wouldn't get that, but the women Not in yet. your audience would get that. <laughs> no. Um, they say that ovarian cancer, is, they call it the cancer that whispers because your ovaries, of course, are extremely precious to us in terms of reproduction. And they're buried so deep inside your body that um that you you don't it's not like it's on the surface you don't find the bump or the lump like you would for breast cancer or you know other cancers it doesn't cause bleeding that kind of stuff that that's obvious like a cervical cancer or something would um so they the symptoms are indiscriminate or indeterminate sort of things like early satiety and maybe constipation and sometimes pain. I never had any pain. Um, but just a, just 
a feeling that something's not quite right inside. So if your your female listeners who still have all their parts are listening to this, be aware it's it's the cancer that whispers. And because of that, um, about seventy five percent of women are caught at late stage. By the time they get diagnosed, it's stage three or stage four, and so it's considered a very deadly cancer. Um, I was very blessed that my tumor was enormous or, you know, my, my cyst was enormous, couldn't be ignored. And, um, and so I was able to be um, diagnosed when it was still at stage one. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I I'm so grateful that you were somebody who would tackle that head on and really address the issue because I think so many of us would rather kind of turn a blind eye and kind of sweep it under the rug and just think it would be something that would kind of go away on its own. So I think that's really impressive. I love how you are able to talk about your own personal story and how you're also able to take a real deep dive into the science. And you do that so well in your book and you kind of cross the two together. And I don't think it's possible to tell your story without explaining the science. And so as we're talking about your story and the, your process through chemo, I would love to understand, you know, some of the science also in context with the things that you were learning at the time. In the very beginning, it sounds like you were already pre-sold on a low carbohydrate diet and decided that was the way you were going to handle this from the beginning. Is that correct? Yes. Once I realized that cancer cells um, are almost dependent on sugar for their metabolism because they metabolize it in a different way than healthy cells. Um, I knew that what I was already doing, I, I lived, I didn't live a ketogenic life. I lived sort of a low carb, um, whole foods based, animal based foods based, um, life. Um, I use a few processed keto foods. Like I have one or two keto breads that I like. Um, but I'm not someone who uses the bars. I don't use the sweeteners. I just haven't yet found a sweetener that I really like. Um, in fact, my latest blog post or my second last blog post is called I've had an epiphany. Keto baking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad. but so true. I saw that blog. That's so funny. Sad, but yeah, true. And, true. And it's just like those sweeteners don't do what sugar does. And you know, if once in a blue, you're going to have something real, have it real. Agreed. Right? I agree. I, yeah, I use organic sugar, I use organic flour if I'm going to bake something or, you know, everything in my house, the bread that my husband uses, the breakfast cereal that my husband still uses, they're all organic to stay away from the glyphosates and stuff. Um, but uh I'm I've just all those alternative products that I've spent money on over the years, I really I'd rather eat whole food. I'd rather eat meat vegetables. Like I say, I have one or two keto breads that I am willing to use that I like. Um, but for the most part, and I'm not afraid of the wheat gluten products. Um, I have no problem with, um, with them. Um, I don't, I don't, um, eat regular bread terribly well when I get into a lot of, um, regular wheat and regular bread products, my bowels tell me I've done it. Mm. Um, they, yeah, that's one thing that went away entirely when I went low carb. So, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. So cancer cells don't burn energy like normal cells in, in normal cells, uh, the energy releasing process where you take a chemical, uh, a molecule of a substrate like glucose, like blood sugar or, um, or fatty acids or ketone bodies or whatever, they go into the mitochondria, which is the organelle that's inside your cells. 
And that's where the, the actual chemical process takes place to release the energy that's in there. And that's a very efficient process. And it's allowed us to be very efficient um, animals. In fact, all life generally, um, certainly animal life uses mitochondria. Um, but cancer cells, their mitochondria tends to be damaged. And so they have they rely on a different metabolic process called cytoplasmic um, fermentation. So it's it's an actual chemical reaction that takes place right in the fluid of the cell. It's it's extremely fast. It's the chemical reaction that we use to make energy if we have an adrenaline rush. You know, we have to jump out of the way of a speeding train or something. Um, that's the energy that's instantly there for your for your muscles. Um, so, so the, the cells are using that process instead. It's not as efficient. It can only really use, um, well, it can only use glucose, has a, some ability to use glutamine, which is a very common amino acid, but for the most part, it's glucose-based. And um, it's not, say, not as efficient, but extremely fast. And it's what the cancer cell uses. So the cancer cells are looking for glucose all the time. They can't use fatty acids. They don't use ketone bodies well, most, most types of cancer. Um, so if you can follow a lifestyle that reduces the amount of glucose in your blood, which also reduces the amount of insulin and other growth factors that allow your body to use the glucose, keep those things low, then the cancer cells can't get what they want. And cancer cells have no ability to shut off what they want. They have no ability to downregulate um, their metabolism in response to fuel supply like healthy cells do. And that's the big thing that really, when I went digging, was the one that kind of opened my eyes to the possibility that I could actually quiet down my healthy cells at the same time that I'm stressing any cancer cells that are in my body. And again, I didn't know if there were cancer cells in my body um, because the tumor was already gone. Um, but if they were, they were like individual rogue cells that I really didn't want to have setting up housekeeping on my bowels or my abdominal wall or anything like that. So, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was this, you know, metabolism that's different and when you talk metabolism, you're talking fuel. And when you're talking fuel, you're talking food. And hey, I'm a dietitian. So, you know, food is kind of, that's where I live, right? Yeah. That's my shtick. Yeah, totally. Well, I love how clearly you explain that. Um, I think the work of Dr. Jason Fung also kind of really clearly defines how cancer behaves a little bit differently and plays by different rules. And you mentioned that kind of, that, that kind of, um, proliferation or growth that always has to continue growing and different than a normal cell. Like a liver cell will get to the size of like a, a, the size that a liver should be. And it stops and knows it doesn't need to continue growing the same with all the other tissues in our body, except for cancer. It just wants to keep proliferating. And I think that's so fascinating. So we think about different treatments, like we're, we're thinking about smashing the cancer and fighting cancer and prevailing against cancer. Well, why, why can we not just provide a different fuel source that the cancer can't really use or thrive on, but ironically, all the other cells in the body can do quite well with and probably prefer it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're designed to run well on fatty acids and ketones. I mean, why would nature have put fat as a storage um, form on our body if we weren't able to actually use it? Right. Um, but yeah, like Thomas Seyfried's press pulse theory, 
where you put pressure on the cancer cells with a, you know, with a low sugar, low insulin, low growth factor environment, and then you pulse it with a treatment. So that, you know, the two parts kind of work together. Um, of course, I was aware of Dr. Fung's work in intermittent fasting um, well before all this started, but um, his book on cancer actually didn't come out. It's funny. It came out two weeks before my book. <laughs> it was rather uh, copacetic that, you know, cancer and keto and fasting was all in kind of in the, the news more or less. He was just waiting for your book to come out so he could make his final revisions and make sure. Right? He's yeah, from Canada yeah, too. No, He's up in your no, neighborhood anyway. But, He's probably uh, looking over your shoulder. Rather, yeah, I knew the year before I'd been to a conference and talked to his partner, Megan, and and because uh, Jason's from Toronto, it's only three hours away. Um, so I, I knew that his next book was going to be about cancer. Um, but when it was pre-released and it turned out to be coming out, I think it was the 10th of November and my book was the 19th or something. It was like, holy, that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, since then, you know, there's been things like Sam Apple's book and, um, you know, and, and Travis Christofferson has put out a book on ketones and, and, um, what his original book tripping over the truth was one of the ones that was really instrumental, um, for me as well. I'd, I'd read a lot of stuff. Uh, Miriam Kalabian's book, Keto for Cancer. Um, fabulous, fabulous uh, information. But putting together the, the keto diet and then the actual fasting around chemotherapy was kind of what made my approach different or unique at that point because no one else was really talking about that. So the fasting aspect, what I call the chemo fasting protocol, um, was built on the work of Dr. Walter Longo, who did a lot of work around fasting and chemotherapy. Um, and I mean, he's more of a longevity researcher, but he did a lot of this work about 10 years ago. And um, he, he proved a couple of things. First of all, he proved that fasting was not going to be detrimental to the effectiveness of chemo. If anything, it made it more um, effective. And that feeds right back into Thomas Seyfried's press pulse theory, right? So that was good. But what really kind of rocked my world was that when you fast, you actually impact on the metabolism of your healthy cells, the non-cancer cells. And that's what was so powerful about this because healthy cells have the ability to downregulate when the fuel supply dries up. Right. So, I mean, you know, through most of human evolution, we have not eaten five meals a day like we do now. We haven't even eaten three meals a day. If you got one every two days, you were doing well, you know. And in the meantime, you like scrabbled around and ate roots or something. But um, so our cells are very good at quieting themselves down and waiting till the fuel supply reappears, right? Digestion starts up again. And what I, what I discovered is that chemotherapy is basically a poison that's designed to kill cancer cells before it kills you, right? And um, to do that, it's, it's a pretty blunt weapon, but a, a lot of them are targeted at some aspect of the growth function of cells. So they work in different ways, but, um, but basically they're looking for the metabolic markers of rapid growth. Okay. So if you have cells in your own body that are reproducing actively or growing, um, then they are also going to get hit by the chemotherapy. 
So that's things in an adult, we're not growing actively most of the time, but things like um, our hair follicles are always growing. Um, our, the bone marrow is producing blood components. So it's always creating red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, your immune system, that kind of thing. The lining of your GI tract is always um, refreshing and regenerating itself. So those are areas of of fairly rapid growth, even in a non-growing adult, right? And that's why chemotherapy side effects means you lose your hair, you have mouth sores, you have GI problems, um, your immune system is suppressed, your blood values are suppressed. Those are the side effects. So if you can quiet down your healthy cells, I call it stealth mode. <laughs> they go into stealth mode. Um, then the chemotherapy, when it's infused into your body, it misses them. It literally doesn't see them and it just passes right over and heads for those cancer cells with the big red flashing lights that are going like, pick me, pick me, because they are still actively um, trying to grow. And so it made a huge difference to side effects. I was, I am so incredibly drug naive. Like, I mean, I barely take a Tylenol. I, you know, other than vitamin D in the winter, I take nothing. And so for me to take chemo was like, mentally and emotionally and physically, it was going to be a really big deal. And, um, and so when I realized that I could possibly impact on my, my chemo side effects by actually just fasting, like something as simple as fasting, um, I decided I was going for it. So I did, I, I developed, I based on Dr. Longo's work and the studies he had released and, and the case study reports he had done, because he did a case series of about 10 patients in 2009 that he published. Um, I decided that I was going to fast for 36 hours prior to my chemo. So that would quiet down my healthy cells. And then I was going to stay fasted for 24 hours after my chemo um, to keep them quiet while that active drug was in my system in its most potent sort of brand new form. Right. So for me, that ended up being about a 72 hour fast. I had two, two chemo drugs. One was put in intravenously and the other was put in inter intraperitoneally, which means it was basically put in through a port and just poured right into my abdominal cavity where it swished around for a few days until it was all absorbed. Um, because of the type of cancer I had, that made a lot of sense. And I was of the, you know, my thought at this point was, I'm only doing this once. So hit me with your best shot. Like, if that's the best way to go, like, let's do it. Um, so my chemo treatments ended up being about eight hours long, instead of just being in and out. Um, and I had to drive to the large cancer center, which is about three hours from where I live. Um, and that meant staying overnight. So we do the clinic visit, the blood work, the clinic visit, the chemo, everything was all done in one long day. And then we'd have to drive three hours home and it was winter in Ontario. <laughs> so every three weeks we'd have this adventure driving wow. down, to, driving down to the cancer center. Wow. But my response to it, even from the very first chemo was stunning. It's the only way I can describe it. Um, I experienced no, uh, minimal, almost no nausea, never threw up, not once in six chemo treatments. And this was not expected for the, the treatment that I was having. Um, 
I had about four days of kind of low energy. I was never horizontal. I would, you know, I was never stuck in bed or any of that sort of stuff. I had a recliner in my living room. Um, and you know, my little nest where I had my computer and my bits and my knitting and all the things that I wanted around me. And about every hour or two, I'd get up and I maybe just go make some bacon and eggs, or I'd walk out to the mailbox or I, you know, something like that, just little excursions. And then when I got tired, I'd come back and sit in my chair. Um, and that was for about four days. And then, uh, then my energy would start coming back up again. And for about two, almost two and a half weeks, I would be pretty much normal. My wow. energy, I mean, I wasn't out running or anything, but I mean, my energy was normal. Wow. I was working a couple of days a week. Um, you know, I was socially active and uh, yeah, it was amazing. Wow. And each time that I had chemo was actually lighter in terms of side effects than the time before. And that's the opposite of what's expected with chemotherapy they are considered yeah they're considered to be cumulative right so it gets worse as you go along but they would give you drugs for after the chemo they give you anti-nausea drugs and the dexamethasone which is the you know the anti-inflammatory sort of steroid every treatment i took less of those after pills than the treatment before so by the time i got to the sixth treatment i was taking nothing after the night of chemo nothing <laughs> And I think I had th of the, the PRN or the as needed nausea pills. I think I might've taken three of them in the entire six treatments. And it was always the Saturday morning, which was the day after I started eating again, right? Wow. During, during the fasting, nothing. Um, it was pretty amazing. That's incredible. I mean, I should, go ahead. So I, was, I should just say it wasn't a water fast. For anybody who's wondering, the, the fasting protocol is in the book. It's also on my website. It's the first blog I ever did. Um, so it's like it's there for free. And if you put your email in my website, you get a download of the one pager of my fasting protocol. But basically, I used um, coffee, tea, um, bubbly water, and probably about two or three cups of bone broth through the entire 72 hours. That was really all I needed to kind of support, you know, particularly the day before chemo because I was feeling really terrific. So I still had an appetite. So that was the day I tended to use bone broth wow. um, to kind of get me through that day. That's great. I'm yeah. really glad you pointed that out. People think fasting and they can't have anything ever. And it's like, no, you can have some things. You just want to stay in that kind of lower metabolic state, like you said, and then that fasted state, which certainly bone broth and coffee would support. You know, I've, I've only had a really good front row seat to cancer with my mom. So different context. And this was 20 years ago. And so obviously the treatments were way different, but what you're describing as far as your experience was absolutely not the experience that I witnessed. I mean, you always knew mm -hmm. when the treatment day was because basically the bedroom doors would be closed for like the next two or three days. And we just kind of knew like they were very, my parents were very public about it, but you just kind of knew like that was your day where you had to kind of sort dinner out yourself. Mom was really nauseous. I remember them prescribing Oxycontin seventies, which I believe at least at the time was like the strongest painkiller that you could absolutely wow. recommend. And I remember them telling her specifically, like when, when she was under a tremendous amount of pain, just to chew them so that they would quick release in the body. So you can imagine like that's... <laughs> 
not ideal, <laughs> not great. No. Um, and I, I remember the, the bouts of nausea and, and all those things that came along with it. So that's really interesting. I think it's interesting to point out too, you're not necessarily suggesting that fasting and a low carbohydrate diet is like, this is the cure. This is the end all be all. You just have to do this. Oh no. You're recommending no. this is a very nice adjunct that can go with this that might help the response. And so it's not that you're throwing away all the conventional cancer treatment. You're using this to together for a benefit. I think that's a, a, a really important context to look at this. Oh no, this is not a cure. This is a way to deal with side effects. Like I, for the rest of the cancer treatment period, the time I was on chemo, I did maintain a strict ketogenic diet and I tested my ketones and, and um, you know, I was in ketosis at least mild ketosis for the whole time. My blood sugar stayed nice and low the whole time, um, except when I had to take the pre-chemo dexamethasone. Oh my God, that stuff like would put my sugar up into diabetic range. Wow. But at the same time, my ketones would be like well up into the threes and fours and stuff because I had I was already well into my fast at that point, right? Um, so that was just weird watching my blood sugars go, you know, crazy with the dex. But uh yeah, it, I I will say I never missed a meal that I didn't plan to miss, wow. not once. And I never missed making the meals because in my house, that's my job. I like it. And so, like I say, sometimes I just make bacon and eggs for supper. That's all we'd end up having. But, you know, that's okay. My, you know, an hour later, my husband would get up and have his bowl of organic breakfast cereal, which is his typical evening snack. And, uh, you know, so he added in the extra carbs when he wanted but. Um, yeah, I, I was really in control for the whole time. That's fantastic. And it is so different. And that's, that's what I really want people to know. Like you can, you can have an impact, not only that, but emotionally and mentally, it is so empowering to know that you have some control over this situation. You are not, you know, just a victim of these horrible poisons in this, you know, someone says, this is what you have to do. And, and you just blindly go, you know, okay, here I am, cut me open or whatever, um, that you have options and you have things you can do that will really impact on your journey. Yeah. That's such an important message. I'm so glad you're so passionate about sharing that. Nobody has ever complained about a meal that was just bacon and eggs ever in the history of bacon and eggs. So we're, we're fine. If that's all you're making for dinner, that's great. We're going to show up anyway. Um, you know, with the, with the vaccines coming out for COVID, especially in the last few years, I think people are familiar, a little bit more familiar with the process of getting something um, approved to be used for people in the different phases um, that are used for vaccines, but also used for a lot of drugs. And a phase one trial just means you're going to take a very small sampling, you're going to see if something is safe, right? Let's make sure that this isn't going to kill people. A second phase mm -hmm. would be like, let's, let's get a bigger group and let's say if this is effective, does this actually work? We know that it's safe. It's not going to kill people, but let's see if this works. And then a phase three trial might be like, okay, let's get a really big group of people and let's see if we can scale this and show that like, yeah, like lots of people, a high percentage of people are really seeing a benefit versus not seeing a benefit. And so on each of those three, I want to kind of ask you those same questions for this particular diet, a, a low carbohydrate, possibly ketogenic, definitely intermittent fasting type diet. Is it first of all safe to do? Is it effective for certain things, including cancer? And is it scalable for a lot of people? Meaning it just wasn't just effective for you, but it could be effective for lots and lots of people out there. Yeah. Um, so the, the work that Dr. Walter Longo did, um, he started with, you know, worms and 
rodents and like worked his way up to people, um, proving that yes, it's safe and yes, it's effective. Um, uh, so that was that sort of allowed me to feel comfortable with the idea of fasting, right? Um, there's certainly nothing that is dangerous about it, except in a few situations. So, and and that's right in my book as well. When fasting isn't you know right for you, um, if you're already severely underweight, if you're cachexic, for example, if you already are experiencing cancer cachexia, then then the fasting is maybe not, and particularly like 72 hour fasting is maybe not the appropriate response, but it doesn't mean that you can't even do like, you know, 18 hours just before your chemo or something like there's, there's ways to modify that. And certainly the concept of cleaning up your diet, um, to whole foods, um, animal-based low, lower carbohydrate, lots of healthy fats, getting the industrial seed, seed oils out, getting the sugar out, that kind of stuff, that'll all benefit you to some degree, right? Secondly, if somebody already has a disordered relationship with eating, if they are, you know, someone who, who's had an eating disorder, um, you know, or food addictions or things like that, then those things need to be taken into account. And there are a few cancers that don't necessarily respond the same way. Um, and I'm not going to speak to exactly what, because they all need, you know, there's, there's so many variations, but what I found really amazing is that people think cancer is like a million different diseases, right? But when it comes right down to it, the metabolism of cancer is almost universal in the cancer cells. And so it doesn't matter whether it's in your brain or your eyeballs or your breast or your ovaries or your you know, your skin or your tissues or whatever, if the metabolism is, is similar and metabolic interventions will make a difference on how happy that cancer is growing, then these are interventions that will work for a lot of people, right? So maybe, you know, maybe fasting isn't appropriate, but it doesn't mean that you can't have at least a moderate low-carb diet that keeps your blood sugar steady, that keeps your insulin steady. And for a lot of cancers, you know, a modest weight loss through the cancer process is not the worst thing. People always say, oh, cancer, don't lose weight. But particularly for um, breast cancers, like for some of the gynecological cancers um, or colon cancers, some of the cancers where, where obesity is actually like a risk factor, then losing a modest amount of weight by using a low carbohydrate approach is not a, necessarily a bad thing. Again, to be supervised. And this is not personalized medical advice for anybody because, you know, there is no doctor patient relationship here or dietitian patient relationship. But, um, but if you're already overweight, getting towards a healthier weight, a more, you know, normal weight um, is not necessarily a bad thing, even in the middle of cancer treatment. Yeah. I mean, Nobody should be dropping 10 pounds. I can tell you that when I was fasting, I would lose between five and eight pounds in that 72 hours. Wow. But it was, it was fluid, mostly. Um, and then over the course of the next couple of weeks, while I'm feeling really good, most of that would come back, usually all but maybe one pound. And, um, and then I'd start fasting again, and another five or six would drop off, and then it would come back. But like I say, that's just that's just fasting. I mean, you you dehydrate and and uh, 
So anybody who's gone through COVID or gone through a stomach flu or something will know that you drop, you know, five pounds almost overnight. I just had COVID a couple of weeks ago and I, I dropped like five pounds in about three days. And, uh, but then it came back, yep. right. It, it works its way back yep, so, as back. your body re normalizes. Mm. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's very well explained. I really appreciate that explanation. Um, in your book, you talk about how you have your keto rules and things people should be thinking about. And you also have an entire chapter that talks about quality matters, but only kind of, can you kind of explain what you meant by that? Yeah. One of the things dietitians do really well is we kind of, we're, we're good at meeting people where they are. Um, there are lots of people who are very much into the, um, I call it the Lottie factor, you know, with diet where everything has to be free range, grass fed, organic, local, whatever. Right. And that's fine if you are financially able to do that, but so many people aren't, they, they either can't do it financially. They can't do it in terms of the logistics of where they live, um, you know, or, or they're just, it, it makes it inaccessible. It makes it elitist. And eating well doesn't have to be elitist. You can find everything you need at a Walmart or, you know, I don't know what your, you know, your, your regular big box grocery stores, your Costco, that kind of stuff. Um, and just by getting some of the crap out, it gives you more money for the good stuff, right? And if you can't afford organic, like, don't worry about it. You know, if you're buying, if you're buying ground beef and you're buying regular bacon, like, that's still better than Oreos and pizza pockets and, you know, and, and sugar, liquid sugar drinks, like, I, I tend to p say to people, like, if there's nothing else you can do, get off the pop. Sorry, soda, <laughs> U.S. soda. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, um, you know, get off the soft drinks. Just get them all out of your life. Everything that is liquid and sugar, get it out of your life. You know, as much as you possibly can. Soda water, you know, regular tea, coffee, whatever, get that liquid crap out of your life, learn to drink water, um, get the industrial seed oils out of your life and get the super high processed foods, anything where, where, you know, monocrop, particularly genetically modified monocrops that are full of glyphosate and all that sort of stuff has been deconstructed down to its basic ingredients, like high fructose corn syrup or, you know, soya proteins or, you know, corn starch, whatever, like they've taken a, a, a food, they've broken it down into its chemical bits. And then they've rebuilt something that kind of looks like food, but isn't. Yeah. Terrible. And yeah. Yeah. So get those things out of your life as much as you can. Okay. Now, having said that, I am still a fan of the occasional small bowl of potato chips because I love potato chips. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's the kind of thing that, that will come into my house once a month and I will eat a little bowl of them and my husband will have the rest of the bag and then that's it. They're gone till the next time I buy some. So there's a place in life for everything. Um, I didn't do that while I was in the middle of chemotherapy, mind you, that's just kind of life, you know, yeah. birthday cake happens, yep. right? Dinners with friends happen. So, but you don't need to be 
you don't need to be organic, free range, everything, everything, you know, buy bags of potatoes and bags of carrots. If that's what you can afford. Yeah. It doesn't have to be organic kale. It doesn't, you know, like there's, there's so many ways to make it accessible. I love that. And you do such a good job of that in your book and with your content of making things really practical and really, you know, accessible for people. So I really love and appreciate that. Um, the recipes that you have in the book are very simple and, and very tasty. Um, I've made a lot of very similar things in my life and they're, they're very, very good. I'm with you, you know, going off of something you said earlier, like if you're going to have a treat, I've done so many of the almond flour, um, arrowroot powder, whatever bullshit desserts that they just, they're, they're not that good. So I, when I tell my clients the same thing, like really make it count. Like if you're going to have a cake, have some homemade cake that your grandma had or, or made for you or something and really enjoy it and just make it as absolutely occasional as possible, but really make it count. Don't waste it on a sleeve of Oreos. We've already lost them as a show sponsor this episode anyway, so we might as well bag on them a little <laughs> bit more. Um, don't do that every single day for something that tastes awful. Like, like make it count, like make it really good. And you do such a great job in the book of making that really accessible and practical. Another thing that I really love is your approach talking about attitude. And I don't know why this has always kind of turned me off. I don't, I don't like saying that we're battling cancer. We're fighting cancer. Yeah. This person died. So they lost their fight with cancer. That, I get why people say that. And, and I, you know, I, I respect it, but I don't, I don't love it. And I try to avoid talking about cancer in that way. And I know you do too. So I would love for you to comment on why attitude is important and why you like to talk about cancer a little bit differently than it's, this is something that needs to be like beat out of you and conquered. Yeah. I, um, back to the dessert thing first, my, the line I use with people is only eat it. If it makes your heart sing, I'm stealing that. I love it. Yeah. Like for me, lemon bars. Oh my God. Like for, for many years, I, you know, every time I went to a funeral or a church lunch, lemon bars. Right? You have a recipe for lemon fat, fat bombs in, in your book. I do. Yes. Oh, I'm I do those. because I mean, I, I just love them. And so if I make a real dessert, it's lemon bars. I don't care for anything chocolate. It does not make my heart sing someone else. It will. But so that's what I tell people. Like if, if it's a, if it's a treat that really speaks to your heart, fine. Just as you say, make it occasional. Don't waste it on something that isn't going to do that. Love that. Yeah. So attitude. Um, I, when I started looking at this, you know, there was a, there, as you say, there was a, a couple of different approaches. There was the, um, the, the warrior sort of approach, you know, and there was the victim approach. And I, the victim approach is, oh my God. I'm, I'm helpless. You know, this is happening to me. Right. Um, I have no control over it. Like, tell me what to do. And I refuse to be a victim. As I've told you, I, you know, went down the rabbit hole, did the research, but then there's this whole warrior approach too, which is like doing battle with cancer and being battle ready is an incredibly stressful place to be emotionally and physically and, you know, mentally. And, I didn't want to be in a battle either. So what I discovered and, and what really helped me to, to determine what my approach was going to be was that cancer isn't a foreign invader. People think it's an invader, something that's, you know, come in and it's growing inside you and it's going to kill you. And, but cancer is yourself. Cancer is your own cells. They are misguided. <laughs> They've gone down the wrong path. 
they're not behaving, um, but they are still you, right? They they haven't come from outside. So I don't want them there. I mean, I don't want that illness. I don't want to die from them and so on. But I also don't feel like I have to hate them. Um, and that was really life-changing for me. I decided I was going to approach the whole process from the direction of love, from self-love, loving my body, grateful, grateful for the strength that got me to 58 years and perfect health. And I was just going to keep loving this body. And so I would literally go to bed every night and I would just put my hands on my lower abdomen um, and, and just like direct love at that that area of myself, right? Um, and so I guess that's a message I really want to get out to people too, is that it's so important to not, um, try not to be fearful as much as you can. Try not to be angry because that just floods your body with negative hormones and negative thoughts and stuff. And really try and approach life from the aspect of gratitude and of loving yourself, because that's really all that's going to um, it's going to be the most powerful in terms of self healing. I kind of call it the Marie Kondo approach to cancer, right? Where you know Marie Kondo is that that cleaning up guru, Spark the joy. little Japanese lady. Yeah, and she says if there's something in your life that is not sparking joy, is not giving you joy, thank it for its role in your life and let it go. And I mean, she's talking about things, but I look at the cancer that way too. It's like cancer came into my life. It has completely sidelined or, de you know, derailed where I thought I was going, sent me off into this writing a book and becoming passionate about a whole different area of nutrition than I thought I ever would. Um, it has been a real gift. So I thank it for that. But I don't need it in my body. Thank you. You can go. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, the Marie Kondo style. I was just thinking like, yeah, you're Canadian. You'll appreciate this. Like I had a closet full of hockey jerseys. I don't, I can only play hockey one time at a time, but I had like 15 jerseys and to go through and say like, I really love this Jersey, but it's not serving me anymore. Let me donate it to some kid who like can really use it and appreciate it. So I only now have two jerseys and that's totally fine, but we, we can do that with, with things and we can do that with ourselves. And I, I just really love and appreciate that approach. And I think it's so important to come at this with love and gratitude. And, you know, I think back to my mom suffering through her, her big mantra through the whole thing was like, let me find one good thing a day to at least be grateful for on my worst day when I feel absolutely terrible and nothing's good going on let me see if there's a flower growing or let me see if it just snowed and it's beautiful outside or just to find that one thing to really wake up for and be alive for I think is so important when you're going through something like that that you mentioned like it completely oh, yeah. derails your entire life so to be able to go through it with grace and to find the good where everything seems like it would just be so much gloom and doom um, I think is yeah. really important I love that that message just shines through so much in your book there's several chapters that really talk about how to implement that and how to carry that through, which I absolutely love. You've been able to share this content with people for a while now with the book, with your blog that you started with and everything else you're, you've done along the way. I'm wondering now that you've been at this for a little while, what are some of the 
first, I, first part of the question is how does it make you feel to be able to share this message with others where it wasn't easily accessible for you when you were looking for it? How is it, how does it make you feel to know that you're sharing this in an easy way with others? And then also what kinds of patterns have you noticed with, with people that have taken your advice and have followed your advice? What, what kind of stories do you hear from that? Um, well, I mean, it makes me feel really good to be able to to share that with other people because I want people to know um, that that this is out there that these these pieces of knowledge that were were not available when I was training and and so a lot of like most dietitians don't know this a lot of people in the cancer centers don't know this um, and so I really that I'm trying to get the message out in whatever way I can and that's why I say the you know I wrote the book. Um, I put a lot of stuff, like a lot of the recipes from the book and a lot of, and the, say the chemo fasting protocol, they're all free on my website. I mean, you could just go read them. Um, so I I want it to be there for everybody. It's not like, um, it's any sort of a secret that's behind a paywall or anything like that. Um, it just needs to get out there. And the people that I've talked to about it, are very appreciative of the fact that there is actually something else and there's something that is within their own control because it is a process that feels very out of control. Um, people can feel like their bodies have betrayed them, you know, that, and they can feel angry and certainly fear. I mean, there's always fear. Um, so by giving them a little bit of control back and, and talking about the attitude stuff too, um, that's why I, I had to find a way to put that in the title of my book without talking about being a warrior, without talking about a battle or being a victim or whatever. And that's where the kick-ass attitude part came. Like, how do you describe that empowerment without it sounding like you're, you're trying to beat something, right? Um, so kick-ass for me means, um, means being in control and feeling good about what I'm doing. I love that. Yeah, that's so great. I'm so glad you carried that through in your message. I absolutely love that. This has been such a fun conversation, one that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. If you had one simple tip that you would like to leave for the listener of this conversation, um, whether they're dealing with cancer personally or not, what would that one tip be? It would be to love your body. So many of us are unhappy with our body. I spent most of my life unhappy with the weight I was at because it was 20 pounds above what society says is an ideal body weight. But you know what? That body is strong. It bore two kids. I mean, like I say, it made it to 58, no aches, pains, not a single drug, nothing. And it took cancer before I really kind of went, you know, <laughs> I really am so thankful that I have the health that I have, that I have the family history that I have. Um, you know, that every, a girlfriend said to me, um, she was someone who'd gone through breast cancer. And she said to me, you know, Martha, it's almost like everything in your life to this point has brought you to just right here, right now to go forward as the keto cancer dietitian. And I kind of went keto cancer dietitian. I like that. And she was the one that sort of put that seed in me that said, you know, you can take your you know, eight year, 10 year history of working with low carb, being a dietitian, being healthy, um, you know, being able to talk to people, take all of that and move it forward and, and actually be able to help people. And that was, that was huge for me. So 
yeah, so love your body. Be grateful for what you've got. Treat it well. Um, hopefully you don't end up dealing with cancer, but if you do, there are things that you still have control of. And remember that cancer is not a foreign invader, it's yourself. And so you you can you can love it, but you can let it go. Yeah. I absolutely love that. What a beautiful message. I remember seeing a meme just a few weeks ago that said, I wish I hadn't spent my skinny days calling myself fat, <laughs> which oh, we can all relate to. So true. So true. Yeah. <laughs> totally true. Yeah, I for think, sure. Especially women, especially women of my generation. Right, yeah. right, right. No, it's so easy to look at ourselves and forget all the amazing, wonderful things that we can do at any level of health. There's something you can do that's really quite amazing. And, and we just forget it because we identify all the things that we think are wrong with us all the time. We just uber focus on those things without focusing on the entire plethora of all these amazing things that we can do as humans, which, um, yeah, is really amazing. Um, if you don't mind, could you tell our audience where they can find you and connect with you in your work? Sure. So the easiest thing is just to go to my website, which is just my name, marthatettenborn.com. Um, it, the landing page is the blog. So the latest, you know, blog will be there at the top of the page. There's links there to um, finding the book um, because it's on Amazon and, and it's wide distribution, Barnes and Noble as, and so on, um, Apple books, everything like that. So there's that information. There's information on working with me. If somebody wanted to do the more um, one-on-one stuff um, through the cancer doula, um, I can't, be a registered dietitian outside of Ontario because of my license, but I can be a health coach. And that's where the cancer doula part comes in because a doula is a, a person who helps somebody going through a medical process. They don't provide the medical process. They are the support for the person like a birth doula. So I identified with that sort of role and called myself the cancer doula. Um, so yeah, so that's there as well. So that's the best place. There's also a, a hacking chemo page on Facebook. And, uh, so if anyone wanted to follow that page as well, um, I post stuff there. That's awesome. You do such a job, a great job, um, doing so much content and making so many resources out there for free. We really appreciate you and your work. Martha, thank you so very much for everything that you've done for all the lessons that you've learned and being willing to go out and share that in the world in a way that's very practical and generates a lot of hope for people. So thank you so very much for everything that you've done. Thank you for your book, Hacking Chemo, and thank you for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you. I've loved it. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads 
worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas, of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.